Hello, my name is Mark Gibson, and you're listening to the podcast version of the Chagask Signpost series, a weekly webinar that promotes and examines sustainability in Irish farming. The series is brought to you by Chagask in collaboration with Dairy Sustainability Ireland, the National Rural Network and Food Drink Ireland Skillnet. Our bees, bumblebees, hoverflies and other pollinating insects have suffered huge declines in recent decades, with many now at risk of extinction. The loss of natural and semi-natural habitats has been a key driver in pollinator declines in Ireland. To address these declines and to try create an Ireland where pollinators can survive and thrive, the first All-Ireland Pollinator Plan was launched in 2015. This year, the 2021 to 2025 plan was launched and we're delighted to be joined by Dr. Una Fitzpatrick, Senior Ecologist with the National Biodiversity Centre and Chair and Project Manager of the All-Ireland Pollinator Plan. Una, very good morning to you. Hi, Mark. Thank you for inviting me. It's lovely to be here. It's great. It's great to have you on, on the webinar. And Pass, good morning to you. Good morning. Una, um, congratulations, I think, is in order because, I mean, the, the All-Ireland Pollinator uh, plan and campaign has really reached uh, a wide audience over the last number of years. Could you tell us a little bit about the, the, the work that you, you do in the, in the uh, National Biodiversity Data Centre and, and even the work, I, I guess, that, that, that the Biodiversity Centre itself does as well? Yeah, thanks, Mark. So I'm a senior ecologist in the centre. I've been here since it opened in 2007 now. So I suppose the centre, it's a wee bit like a central statistics office, but for plant and animal information. So we track changes in Ireland's wildlife. You know, we know where it is, you know, how it's doing, how it's changing. So really important. And, and then we feed that to, to, to all the people who, who need that kind of information. So the areas that I particularly work on are plants and, and pollinators. Uh, and as, as you mentioned, we've known for some time that there's serious declines with our pollinators. So I mean, it was through that work, you know, through initiatives we have here to track changes in particularly in wild bees that we knew there were serious issues. And that was then the driver for working with Professor Jane Stout and Trinity, you know, to, to try and instigate some sort of change. And that's where the All Ireland Pollinator Plan came from. Very good. Very good. And you have sought a more democratized approach to collecting data i noticed as um you 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 use kind of a crowdsourced model for some of your your data selection yeah so within the national biodiversity data center we collect data from all sources so some of it comes from government sources you know organizations like yourselves but also you know we do have facilities for anyone who sees biodiversity is able to identify they can also submit data to us through, through the citizen science initiatives that we have. So yeah, we collect data from a whole broad swathe of different sources and we collate it all together and then make it freely available to all those who, who need to use that, that validated data. Right. So you're going to tell us a little bit more about the, the most recent plan and its objectives. And um, so if I could ask you to, to share your screen with yeah. us. And um, so I'm going to talk to you today about the All-Ireland Pollinator Plan and how really we've been trying to help biodiversity so as I said, I work in the National Biodiversity Data Centre. Um, we have amazing biodiversity in Ireland. You know, there's 31,500 different species, you know, in, in over 100 different habitats. But I think we all know at this stage that biodiversity loss is a huge problem. And I think it can be hard to feel empowered to do anything about that because biodiversity itself is such a complex topic. So what you really need are simple vehicles that can be used to sell that biodiversity message to a really wide audience. And thankfully, pollinators are perfect for this. So they're an element of biodiversity that people can understand and relate to. You can communicate about, about them in a really clean and simple way. You can easily monitor changes. And, and really importantly, when you protect pollinators, that has knock-on benefits for biodiversity generally. So I think we all know pollination is really important. You know, the free service that bees provide is worth up to 59 million a year just to the economy. We also know they're really important for health and well-being. You know, it's the fruit and vegetables that are mainly um, requiring pollination. And really importantly, we know that in countries like Ireland, over three quarters of our wild plants also need to be pollinated. And it's simple to show it like this, but you know, if we didn't have bees and other pollinators in the landscape, then it looks totally different. You know, those wild plants are providing fruits and seeds for birds and mammals. So really in protecting pollinators, you are protecting the, the environment as a whole. So who are the pollinators in Ireland? Well, 
most pollination of our crops and our wild plants is carried out by bees. And the rest then is, is by various other insects that happen to visit flowers, but particularly flies. So number one are bees, number two are flies, and then all the other insects that happen to visit flowers. And unfortunately, you know, the plight of pollinators is typical of what's happening to a lot of our biodiversity. And in Ireland, we've got 99 different bees. So there's the honeybee, which most people, you know, very familiar with. That's one that's kept by beekeepers. It's a, a managed pollinator and, and the honeybee is, isn't in trouble. But then we have these 98 wild bees. So we've got 21 different bumblebees and 77 different solitary bees. And unfortunately, one third of those 98 species are threatened with extinction. And I think even more worryingly from schemes within the National Biodiversity Data Center, like the All-Ireland Bumblebee Monitoring Scheme, where we track changes in our common pollinators. So within the Bumblebee Monitoring Scheme, we track changes in the abundance of our common bumblebees. And unfortunately, that abundance has been declining since we started measuring that in 2012. So really serious issues out there. So those rare species disappearing through loss of semi-natural habitat, and the common species decline in, in abundance as a consequence of the way we're managing the rest of the landscape. So if there's a problem, what do you do? Well, I think you have to decide if it's important, critically assess it, how serious it is, identify the causes, then collectively agree a positive framework to address it. And that, you know, as we chatted about at the start, that is what the All Ireland Pollinator Plan is trying to do. Once you have the plan, I think you have to identify evidence-based actions to help communicate those properly develop a partnership approach where you can, and then track progress, you know, is what you're trying to do actually working? So these are 98 uh, wild bee species. You can see they're like gorgeous insects and using diversity. And really, if you want to help the pollinator plan, it's about thinking about how your site, and I've always said, you know, anyone who has any responsibility for a piece of land can get involved in this and, and needs to get involved in this. And it's about thinking about how that site, from the smallest window box to the biggest farm, how it can provide food, shelter, and safety for pollinators. And if you can do that, then you can help protect biodiversity generally. So I wanted to tell you a wee bit about pollinators themselves. I think it's really important, or, or it helps when people understand the ecology and what it is they need, because that becomes much easier to understand how it is that you can help. So we've got 21 different bumblebees in Ireland. You can see their huge diversity. Most people, you know, when, well, it's only when you start looking that you realize how many that you might have, you know, on the farm or in your garden. And most of our bumblebees nest on the surface of the ground or just underneath. A new one arrived in September 2017, was spotted for the first time. It's called tree bumblebee. And this one's a wee bit different. So traditionally, what this one would do is nest in cavities and trees. But what's been happening across the UK is that people are putting up bird boxes and finding instead of a blue tit, they have to have the tree bumblebee. So I can't wait for that to happen in my garden, but they, they haven't reached um, Waterford just yet. So I'm going to tell you a wee bit about the life cycle of bumblebees. Uh, what happens is the queen comes out of hibernation in early spring. She feeds and finds somewhere to make a nest. She prepares a pollen loaf, so she collects as much pollen as she can, makes it into little tiny loaf. She also makes a wax nectar pot and then she starts laying eggs that she'll fertilize with sperm stored from the previous year. Those female workers emerge and take over the nest duties. The queen stays in the nest laying eggs. In mid to late summer the queen lays some unfertilized eggs which become males and she'll also set, let some of those female workers develop into new queens. So the new queens and the males they leave the nest to find mates. The mated new queen, she has to fatten up before hibernation. Everyone else dies off. So the old queen, all the female workers, all the males, they all die off. And then the mated new queen hibernates and the cycle starts again the next year. So you can see there, they need somewhere safe to nest. They need somewhere safe to hibernate. And then they need food right throughout their life cycle. So they say bumblebees, they mostly nest on the surface of the ground or just underneath. So they need undisturbed areas of grass, base of a hedgerow, those areas are perfect. Hibernation, they tend to burrow into, uh, they'll burrow into the ground, mostly into north-facing slopes usually, and they choose north-facing slopes just so they don't get the winter sun and think it's spring too soon. So you can see that they need food throughout the year, and that is critical. And we've got better at providing this or thinking about this because people, you know, become more aware of, of the difficulties that pollinators are in, but we tend to help them when we see them, which is in spring and summer. 
and you need to not forget about the other ends of the cycle. So in early spring, that's when the queens are establishing their nests. And we know from, from research, this is the buff-tailed bumblebee, one of our most common bumblebees in Ireland. And we know she has to visit thousands of flowers every day just to get enough nectar to maintain the heat to brood her first batch of eggs. And you can imagine yourself, you know, in, in early spring, if you look around the Irish landscape, how difficult that is. And things like willow dandelion, just incredibly important for them to be able to, you know, kickstart their life cycle for the year. And again, the other end of the, the cycle in autumn, that's when those new queens, they have to fatten up, you know, to be able to successfully hibernate. And we know, again, the buff-tailed bumblebee just weighs 0.6 grams to successfully hibernate, which doesn't sound much to us, but, you know, that's, that's chunky if you're a bumblebee. So really important that there's still um, flowers, food sources in the landscape for them into, you know, late summer into autumn. Ivy, incredibly important. Other things, you know, like, like knapweed. These are our solitary bees, so 77 different types. You can see the huge diversity there. A lot of people surprised to, to know even some of these are solitary bees. Some look a wee bit like wasps, you know, like flying ants. But yeah, amazing range and, and diversity of insects. They have a simpler life cycle. So with solitary bees, the males and the females emerge in spring. They meet. The female makes a nest. She lays eggs and leaves a food supply of pollen. <clears throat> and most of our solitary bees are called mining bees. So they make a wee tiny burrow into bare soil and, and that's how, how they nest. So the female will make this little burrow and be different cells in it. And in each cell, she'll lay an egg and then she'll leave a food supply. So she'll leave a little ball of food beside the egg, close off the cell and then do it again. So they might do this eight or 10 times. Once they've done that, they'll close off the whole nest. Males and the females will die. The larvae then overwinter and the cycle starts again the next year. So you can see that these solitary bees, they also, you know, they need somewhere safe to nest and they need food sources. So most of our solitary bees is that are mining bees. So they nest in, in bare ground, south or east facing slopes usually. And so easy to provide this, you know, whether it's in a garden, on a farm, you know, on public land, wherever it happens to be. Really, you know, it is just as simple as this. You need areas just where there are bare soil. And, and, you know, ideally south or east facing. A smaller number of our solitary bees then are called cavity nesters, and they nest in existing cavities. So they use existing holes. So that might be in, in wood, you know, existing holes that we've made, or that another insect, a beetle or whatever, whatever happens to have made, might be in, you know, old stone walls where there are cavities, or it might be in the bee boxes that you can make or buy. And um, this is just a photograph actually of a, of a bee box I took on, on a farm a few years ago. And th there's two types of bees that are most likely to use these boxes. And one are the leaf cutters. These amazing solitary bees. So what they do is they cut pieces, circular pieces of leaf or petal out, and they use that to line the cells in the nest. And, and you'll know your bee box is being used if you see this happening. So you can see in this one, that one was occupied by, by leaf cutter bees. And you can see each of these um, bamboo cavities where it's been used and where there's you know eggs in there, they've closed off the entrance with a, with a circular piece of leaf. So you know if you have one of these, you'll be able to check really easily whether or not it's being used. And the other type of bee that uses these, that, that are cavity nesters that uses those bee boxes are it's called the red mason bee. And someone sent me this amazing um, photograph progression. I, I just want, want to share it with you. So this was taken so this is actually inside a beehive so a beekeeper had come back to their hive and discovered that a red mason bee had decided that was a good place for them to nest as well so when the beekeeper came back you know to look after the hive he was able to open it up and see what was how this red mason bee nest was progressing so you can see here that the different cells now this one unlike the leaf cutter they don't use circular pieces of leaf or petal what the red mason bee does is collect mud and uses that to make these cells and the females have these special horns on the front of the head that lets them push the mud into place. It's amazing, you know, what can happen in nature. So you can see the cells in the nest and you can see the different types of pollen that have been collected. So they've left this food source, some, you know, this orange, some more orange, some yellow has been collected from different flowers. And you can see then that the bee has laid an egg in each of these cells. So when the beekeeper came back, you know, number of weeks later, you can see that the uh, eggs have developed into larvae, started eating the food source. And again, then this shows that another 
you know, number of weeks on, where the larvae are more developed, they've almost finished their food sources. So what will happen now is that they'll stay in their cocoons, and then the following spring that they'll pupate, and, and the adults will emerge the next year. Just thought it was, it was interesting, you know, to be able to see, because it's so infrequently you actually get to see what goes on in, in a solitary bee nest. And just to say going on about solitary bees, most people are not even aware, you know, that they're out there in the landscape. The thing about them is that they're really important pollinators. And research has shown that just one of those female red mason bees in the nest that we just looked at, just one of them can do the work of over 100 honeybees. And the reason for that is all to do with the way that bees collect pollen. So honeybees and bumblebees are really good at it. I guess, you know, they're a bit more involved. They figured out the best possible way to collect as much pollen as possible and bring it back to the nest to feed their young. So what they do is they store the pollen as this moist pellet on the back, on, on their hind leg. So they have this pollen basket and they store this pollen pellet on the back and they bring back as much as they can. So they're really good at it. Um, most solitary bees, also store the pollen on the back leg. So when they collect pollen, they brush it off their body onto the back leg, but they haven't evolved to store it as this moist pellet. So it's kind of a dry, loose pellet that they pack into the hairs on the back leg. So you can imagine yourself, you know, there's more pollen falling off, getting dispersed around the flowers, which makes them slightly better pollinators. And then the leaf cutters and the mason bees, they're totally inefficient. So they haven't evolved to store it on their back leg. Instead, what they do is they pack the pollen into the hairs on the underside of their abdomen. So you can imagine yourself, the pollen goes everywhere, you know, some comes back, some goes over the flower, but it makes them really, really good pollinators. So, which, which is why they're so efficient. So pollinators need food, shelter, and safety. And it's all very well saying that and asking people to help unless you actually explain exactly what it is that they can do. So that's what we've tried to do within the All-Ireland Pollinator Plan. So we've been producing these evidence-based guidelines for different sectors. So, you know, there's one for farmers, councils, you know, local communities, businesses, gardens, so on. Um, and the important thing is that they're all evidence-based. Each time we've engaged with the sector and they've fed into them, and each time we try to really tailor the communication to that sector. So you can, you can see all these are freely available on the website at pollinators.ie. We've got another series of how-to guides for some of the more complicated actions, and then a third series for, for more site-specific type sites, you know, golf courses, sports clubs, and so on. So you can find all this on pollinators.ie, so all the resources, you know, there's also um, videos and animations and signage templates and presentations, all sorts. Hopefully, you know, we wanted it to be a one-stop shop where if someone wants to help, they can come onto the website and, and find out all they need to know, hopefully. So I want to talk about two key actions for pollinators and the key driver in decline is hunger. You know, there's just not enough food in the landscape anymore. So there are two key actions that would make a huge difference. And the first one is in spring to have more native flower and hedgerows and trees. You know, I think we all know this and Chagas do an amazing amount of work to promote, you know, flower and hedgerows, which is fantastic. And that is a critically important action for, for pollinators and for biodiversity. The second really important action then is more native meadows and together these work. So what happens, ideally what would happen is that you would have these native flower and hedgerows and trees in spring, you know, they flower once they're finished flower and then you're moving into having these lots and lots of native foreign meadows, you know, into late, later spring, summer. We'll talk a wee bit about these meadows. And I just want to show this picture because we talk a lot within the pollinator plan about don't mow, let it grow. And really, if we did this, you know, don't mow, let it grow, let more of our grassy areas just grow and allow the flowers to come up within them, it would make such a difference to pollinators. And, and we always say, you know, just, you know, reducing your mowing really is the most cost-effective way to provide food. And you can see in this slide, there's three types of mowing going on there. You know, you've got cut regularly, cut less frequently, maybe, you know, once every four or six weeks, and then cut once a year, which is food and shelter. And you can imagine yourself, if you were a bee, you know, you're not down with that because there's nothing there for you, but you'd love a bit of these two. So, and so easy to do this, you know, in lots of places, whether it's in gardens, you know, areas of the farm, public land, roadside verges, so easy, you know, to move to this slightly different management that would provide huge amounts more resource 
food resource for our pollinators. Important thing is, if you want these grassy areas to become more far rich, you do have to take the grass cuttings away. And what that's doing is lowering the soil fertility gradually and giving the wildflowers a chance to compete with the grass and grow. So you really do have to remove the cuttings, you know, each year. And over time, these areas become more far rich all on their own. And it's nothing fancy. I think sometimes, you know, this perception gets out that, that bees and biodiversity need these fancy wildflowers. They don't, right? They just need really simple wildflowers that will grow if we let them. So you can see on this picture, you know, these plants, dandelion, daisies, buttercups, you know, cuckoo flower, bird's foot trefoil, fetches, so clover, so important to our pollinators because, you know, they provide the nectar and the pollen that they need. And this habitat, you know, a, a big part of the reason for biodiversity loss is that we have lost a lot of, you know, species rich grasslands. Of course, you know, it's partly a consequence of change in agriculture, but also a consequence of how we manage the rest of the landscape. And if we could get this habitat back, it would make all the difference in the world. And, you know, you can get it back. If it's one pocket at a time. You know, at least that's, you know, that's a really positive thing to start doing. But this is what it looks like. Sometimes people picture a wildflower meadow, and I think they have this, I'll show you another picture in a minute of what I think they have the image of, but it's this that's important. You know, these are fantastic habitats for biodiversity. And it's people say, well, it's easier to do that in certain areas than others, and it is, but I always say, you know, you'd be amazed at what will pop up if you give it a chance to, you know, you, you might need to have a bit of patience, but there are amazing things waiting in soil seed banks that just were dying to pop up if, if we would only give them a chance. And I think this might be what picture, people picture, unfortunately, when they picture a wildflower meadow. And, and I just want to talk a wee bit about, about wildflower seed. That's something different. When you buy a packet of wildflower seed, that's something different. You're buying a package of seed of lots of different flowers that have been put into that packet to, to probably to look good to humans, to be honest. They, the chances are that those plants would never grow together in the wild. You know, that's not a natural habitat. It's not better for pollinators. What we always try to say within the All-Ireland Pollinator Plan is the don't mow that grow approach that I just showed you. That is a really important biodiversity action. We're bringing back a natural habitat. This plant and wildflower seed is something different. That's a horticultural action. You know, you're planting a, a flower meadow. That, that's a horticultural action. I think, you know, it's important just that people understand the distinction between the two so that they can choose you know, what one it is that, that they feel is best to do. And there are lots of issues around wildflower seed. You know, it's expensive, it's difficult, critically, that it's not being regulated. So you don't know what it is that you're bringing in, you know, and, and Chagas know this better than anyone. And, you know, we also, you know, the press release that came out where, where, where black grass had been discovered in, a, in one of these seed packets, you know, that is a huge risk. And I think we have to be really, really careful around this action and say within the pollinate plant, it's not one that we endorse. And we do really try to promote the natural regeneration of, of areas. I know I'm laboring this point a wee bit, but I just want to just show you this one last picture. And uh, Middleton in, in County Cork um, have been really supportive of the pollinator plant and, and they developed a Middleton Town pollinator plant. And one of the actions they decided to take was to look at all the areas where for decades they had mowed the grass really tightly and they decided that across a whole load of verges in the town that they would move to reduce mowing regime. So they did um, last year and in the first year, so along these verges in the very first year, they counted a total of 363 bee orchids popped up, you know, and which just shows you what's possible. I always picture these little bee orchids in the soil seed bank there trying to come up every year and getting chopped off with the mower. You know, so it's amazing when you let biodiversity return, what will happen? And, and I almost break out in a cold sweat when I think about what could have happened and what lots of community groups, you know, or people in the garden are tempted to do, which is to spray off these areas with Roundup. And then to buy a packet of wildflower seed and throw that out, you know, where you're planting this collection of flowers that probably weren't collected from Ireland, who knows what they are. Whereas if we just give biodiversity a chance to return, amazing things can happen, you know, as, as is the case in, in Middleton. So I just wanted to briefly a couple of, um, of the successes that we've had within the pollinator plan in the first phase. Um, just, just really quickly, you know, so that the first plan had 81 actions and, and those have, have been delivered, you know, thanks to the huge support we've had from all our partners. We have evidence-based toolkits by sector. This is at the end of 2020 when 55% of councils had become partners 
um, it's it's increased substantially actually in 2021 and we're now up to over three quarters of all councils who have partnered with the plan. 162 communities have become pollinator friendly. We've reached all primary schools in the Republic. Um, the number of business supporters continues to increase. Parks have become pollinator friendly. Within the National Biodiversity Data Centre, we have a special online mapping system where you can go in and say what it is on your site. You can draw around your site and say what it is that you're doing to help. And the number of sites that are being logged as pollinator friendly within that system continues to increase. We're seeing, you know, hugely increased levels of volunteer recording within the centre. You know, whether that's people submitting casual records of pollinators or taking part in our schemes like, like the All Ireland Bumblebee Monitoring Scheme. And raising awareness. We have this farmland EIP project within the centre protecting farmland pollinators, which I'll, I'll talk about briefly at the end. We have there's a we don't have but there's an Irish there's an Irish pollinator research network um, which was established in 2017, and that network has continued to grow. You know, and and they provide really important support in that they're providing the evidence base for the pollinator plan, and you know, research in the areas that we need research so that the plan can continue to be dynamic and and, and identify the best actions to take. And again, then, you know, thanks to the huge support that we've had from all our partners, and we're incredibly grateful to all the people who've engaged with the plan. But thanks to that support, you know, it has been recognised as a success story internationally. People are interested in, in what was achieved in the first phase. I'd recommend you have a wee look at this booklet. So it's, we wanted to pull together, you know, positive stories from across all sectors. It's probably the hardest thing we ever did because there were so many that we could have chosen from. But we picked 80 to go into this booklet to mark the end of the first phase. And, and really, if people want to have a look at the kind of things that have been happening, you know, you, you can see this booklet. I've put the link in there for you. So just to say now a wee bit about the next plan and what we're hoping that's going to look like and the kind of things that we're hoping to achieve. Really, with the next plan, we wanted it to be more ambitious, yet remain realistic. So we critically review the successes and failures of the first plan, and we try to build on these for the next five years. So this time around, we've got six objectives and 186 actions. So the first plan had 81 actions. Not sure, we might have lost the run of ourselves this time, but we now have 186 actions. So you know, no, it's fantastic. And, and we were able to, to ensure that this plan is uh, more ambitious, you know, which is great. And, and I think, you know, on behalf of the steering group, we're, we're really looking forward, you know, to, to working on it and, and, and now delivering it within the National Biodiversity Data Centre. Also, want to acknowledge, you know, we have received more funding for the plan this time around, which, which is fantastic. So Juanita Brown has been the project officer on the plan since 2017, and she's amazing and largely responsible for a lot of success of it. So Juanita's position is now funded by the National Parks and Wildlife Service. So we're delighted, you know, to have that security around it and to have the support of, of MPWS. Also thrilled that Ruth Wilson has joined us in April. Um, as the farmland pollinator officer and huge thanks to the Department of Agriculture who've agreed to fund that position and help us deliver the objectives and the actions under making farmland more pollinator friendly. And also just a few weeks ago, Sarah Kelly joined us to help with the growing network of business supporters and Board BIA, again, thanks to them, they've agreed to fund that position until the end of 2021. So it's great to have this, this team of, of people now to you know, work and, and help implement the plan for this new phase. So just quickly, sort of a whistle-stop tour of some of the key things that we want to achieve in this next five years with the plan. The first thing is that we want to, oh, sorry, I'll just talk about the different objectives. So objective, I'm gonna come back to objective one because that, that's one on farmland, so I'll finish up with that one. But objective two is about making pollinate, a public land more pollinator friendly. So within this one, what we want to do is to build on the successes and really encourage more land to be managed for pollinators of biodiversity. So within this, don't worry, I'm not going to talk about them all, but within this, you know, there's 10 targets and 57 actions. So it's one of the bigger objectives. Um, lots and lots of partners, thankfully, have come on board and agreed to help us, you know, make this happen. Again, thanks to MPWS, who now have funded Juanita's position, so you know, we have support on this end to help people. And lots of local authorities also are on board and, and, and will hopefully work with us on this one. So some of the key things that we want to achieve within public land for the next five-year phase. 
Um, we want to do a lot more training, provide more technical advice. You know, the first phase was, you know, trying to explain the issues, get people taking action. You know, thankfully, we, we've moved online into this new phase. And what you find is that people now need more technical advice, whether it's on, you know, grassland management, whatever it happens to be, pesticide, you know, reduction. So that's what we want to try and do more of in this next five years. We also want to expand to new sectors. So we're really keen to, to, you know, to engage with new sectors like healthcare sites. And we were delighted that, that a hospital in, in Derry, um, which is great, uh, became the first uh, hospital to sign up as a, you know, as a supporter of the plan just this month. And we hope that many more will follow. We want to recognize sites that have decided to go pesticide free. We want to encourage more ecological corridors and, and people have been amazing in terms of, of just doing this themselves, you know, and really working within local areas to ensure that there are these corridors so that the council actions are linking up with local authority, but with local community actions with people in the garden, you know, and then expand that out into the wider countryside and to, into farmland. So we want to really encourage that, that landscape level approach in, the, in this next plan. We want to strengthen the links with other initiatives, particularly, you know, climate and health. And we want to also establish a pollinator trail to celebrate really excellent examples of, of pollinator habitat across the island. What we find in the first phase was that there's lots of examples of amazing, you know, natural grasslands that have been restored. What we're hoping to do is to take the best of those actions and to turn them into a branded pollinator trail you know, that people can see where these locations are, you can go and visit them, they can be used for knowledge exchange, and also, you know, to positively promote what, what people have been doing. Objective three is making public land or private land pollinator friendly. Again, in this one, you know, we want to try and do more engagement, so we want to expand to new sectors. So we launched a guideline for sports clubs just this year, and we're delighted, you know, that, to be able to work with the GAA to try and roll this out. Want to use gardens for general awareness reason. We have a new initiative called Pledge Your Garden for Pollinators. Um, so if anyone's interested in doing something after today, you can pledge your garden. We have lots of resources and suggest the kind of things you can do in your garden each month. And you know, you can go in and, and pledge your own garden if 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 you're interested, that'd be fantastic. And also we want to try and grow the number of, of business supporters um, and support those those people better. And say we're delighted that Board B have supported or supporting us in that for the rest of this year. Uh, and again, the, the number continues to increase. It's 320 there. And not that long since I made this slide, but it's up to over 359, which is fantastic to see. Objective four is an all Ireland 20B strategy. So we decided this time we'd make this standalone strategy, but also have it slot into the pollinator plan. Again, within that, we want to try and ensure more collaboration within the sector. So we're delighted that you know all the players have agreed to come onto a steering group, you know, which, which will hopefully ensure that happens. I like this picture because it shows the standoff between a bumblebee and a honeybee there. And th this is an important one. What we want to do for the next phase is to ensure that honeybees are part of a cohesive and a balanced pollinator voice. And what we find is that sometimes, I think because honeybees get so much of the media share of attention, sometimes people think, oh, the best way to engage with the pollinator plan, the best way to see of bees is to, is to get a hive of honeybees. You know, that, that's not the case. Honeybees are not in trouble. And actually, if we had too many honeybees in the landscape, they'll just compete for resources with our wild pollinators. And it's the wild pollinators that are threatened with extinction. You know, so we need to balance that message and, you know, get that message out that it's the wild pollinators that need our help and, and to create a better balance between the two. And the um, beekeeping associations have been really supportive, you know, on this. Use of healthy honeybees and, and, and then collect better data. Objective five is around conserving rare pollinators. So again, we pull this out into its own objective the next time around because obviously it's really important. What we want to do here is to provide best practice advice, you know, on specific species. So we had a great yellow bumblebee guide last time. We want to follow that up with guides on more of our really threatened rare pollinators. And a link to policy, raise awareness better, and obviously then track change. And then objective six is a strategic coordination of the plans. Again, this is an, another new objective and, and just a more logical structure for phase, phase two. Then this we want to do more general awareness reason. We want to try really hard to reach new audiences. You know, so it's it's easy to talk to people who are already slightly on board, but you know, it's much 
harder but more worthwhile to reach audiences that are less receptive or are new to the topic. So that's what we really want to try and focus on. There's a the Irish Pollinator Research Network. They've identified new research priorities to support the, the new phase of the plan. And we'll create a network structure for other supporting organizations. There's so many other organizations out there who perhaps don't have an action in the plan itself, but really want to do something on their own, in their own organization, on their own sites. So we're now have created a network, you know, to support them. And also to establish and maintain a suite of support and databases, you know, which, which is what we do within the National Biodiversity Data Center. And just to say, track and progress is a hugely important part of the Pollinate Plan, you know, it always has been. And, and I think a strength of having the National Biodiversity Data Center, you know, overseeing the, the delivery is that, you know, we're, we're ideally positioned to do that. So we're tracking progress in the short term, that's delivery of the now 186 actions in this new plan. We also track progress in terms of the food and shelter going back into the landscape. And as I say, we've developed within the center this online mapping system where you can log your action, you know, and, and we can track changes that way. And then in the long term, it's changes in the pollinators themselves, which is what we do within the center. Particularly through our citizen science initiatives, you know, the bumblebee management scheme, the flower insect time to comments. And then lastly, coming on to the most important objective, which is one um, making farmland more pollinator friendly. And in this one, what we really want to do is, you know, build on the groundwork from the first phase. Five targets, 26 actions, lots of um, organizations have agreed to support us, including Chagask, who've been incredibly supportive, you know, right throughout the pollinator plant journey and huge thanks to Chagas and particularly to Catherine Keena. Um, and as I say, we're delighted that the Department of Agriculture have agreed to fund a pollinator officer to help us with this. So we want to, within farmlands, you know, we want to do more direct engagement this time around, more training and you in Chagas, you know, you've got excellent knowledge exchange programs. So we hope that we can, you know, collaborate and, and support you where we can. We want to develop more evidence-based resources and particularly, you know, for forestry and also for stud farms. We want to raise awareness by celebrating farmland pollinators and biodiversity. You know, I think that's really important. And within the National Biodiversity Data Centre, we have just this year launched this festival of farmland biodiversity that we're hoping to run each May. And we also want to track changes and better monitor pollinators on farmlands. And I hope, you know, that, that there will be positive um, progress on that soon. And lastly, we want to build on the learnings, particularly from the Protecting Farmland Pollinators EIP project. And just to finish up this talk, I wanted just, just a couple of minutes just to tell you some of the things that have been going on within the EIP project, you know, and in terms of what we've learned for, for supporting pollinators on farmland. So back in 2017, we produced this guideline document within the pollinator plan. So actions to help pollinators on farmland. It's developed in consultation with farmers and identified you know, really simple evidence-based options that will help pollinators and biodiversity in the farm without impacting on productivity. And again, you know, Chagas fed into, and particularly Catherine fed into this hugely, you know, we're grateful for that support. So I think what we knew was that all farms could become more biodiversity, more pollinator friendly, but the challenge remained on how to actually make that happen. And really, we wanted a mechanism that would work for all farm types, that wouldn't impact on the farm business, that would definitely benefit biodiversity, so it was evidence-based, that would allow progress to be clearly tracked and monitored, and that would be flexible and that would reward farmers for their efforts, and also that would have a low administrative burden, so it could potentially be rolled out on bigger scales. So I worked with an amazing group of farmers in County Kildare that we'd met through the development of the original guidelines. And we came up with this project called Protecting Farmland Pollinators. And, and again, you know, Catherine Hina, just want to flag because she's been so supportive and she has been involved in this project right from the start and helps develop this, this EIP project. Um, so we developed it with the farmers and then thankfully it was awarded EIP funding, you know, for 2019 to 2023. So we're delighted that that project is now happening within the National Biodiversity Data Centre. We've got an excellent project manager in Serla Kavna, and I sort of oversee things, but I, as I had you here as a captive audience, I just want to say a wee tiny bit about what's happening within the project. And just to try and explain what we were trying to do with this, and I didn't grow up in a farm, but both my parents did, and I spent a lot of time in farms as a child, and this is my mum's farm. And I've talked to her about what it used to be like, you know, when she was growing up. 
and she'd say that there were loads of foreign hydro, you know, really extensive foreign hydro across the farm. <clears throat> These fields were always cattle, but slopey, not much else you can do with them. There were always, you know, a range of fruit trees and shrubs around the farmhouse, and they're still there. You know, we still go back to collect the dams and plums. There was always a field of spuds, a field of vegetables. There were four, usually, fields of hay meadows, which obviously would have been really rich in wildflowers. And then they had, you know, around four fields of, of cereal, which was oats. And again, you know, you, you would have got the annual flowers coming into those back in the day. So obviously very little pesticide use back then, very flourish and very pollinator friendly. But also really hard work. You know, it's not like you're looking back at that rosy tinted spectacles. You know, it was really hard work and, and difficult to support a family. Today, it's not flourish or pollinator friendly. But, you know, there are lots of habitats that will support pollinators on farmland. You know, whether it's flowering hedgerows, flowering trees, you know, the non-farmed areas that are that are unmanaged, they kind of don't mow that accrual approach, it just lets those wildfires naturally appear. Again, reducing pesticide use. Might be particular actions dependent on the farm type, you know, whether it's clover pastures or species rich sward, or maybe, you know, catch your companion crops for tillage. And then there might be, you know, still areas of traditional hay meadows, however, um, small. So what we wanted to do was develop this whole farm pollinator scoring system based on the presence and quality of these habitats. We wanted to have a system that was really flexible, easily calculated, easily understood, and easily improved, you know, without impacting on the productivity. And then we wanted to carry out large-scale monitoring on the 40 farms to show the evidence base for a scoring system that actually works. And then farmers are paid dependent on their scores, so it's results-based. And that's essentially what the EIP project, the Protecting Farm and Pollinators one, is, is doing. I'm not going to go into detail of this, but just the scoring system. So you have these actions, the farmers can say how much they have. Each gets a weighting, depending on how good it is. And again, you know, if you score that, my, my mum's farm back in the 50s or the 60s, it gets a huge score because it had so much foreign hedgerow, it had hay mildew, it wasn't pe using pesticides. If we score it now, the score is really low because there's really not very much there. But what it could be, you know, if hedgerows are managed in a different way, maybe there's clover pasture, pesticides are reduced, you could get a much higher score. So it's not about necessarily going back to that, but it's about getting this new balance that works for farmers, but also works better for biodiversity. So that's what the Protecting Farm and Pollinator Project is doing. There's 40 farms across types and across intensity levels. And we're going to show that the scoring system works for them. So there's the scorecard, you know, the farmers decide what it is that they want to do, what actions best suit their farm, and then they're paid, depending on their scorings, and, and, and we've kept the, the, the funding in line with current arbory environment schemes. Lots of successes to date, and if, if you want to read about it, you can see this annual re report, which was produced just at the start of this year. But, you know, a lot, as I say, just successes, you know, thankfully farms still have biodiversity, you know, there's been a really high level of farmer engagement that the 40 farmers are amazing. You know, they really have engaged with the project. We've carried out extensive biodiversity surveys last year with Sarah and the team. So there's a huge data set now that we can analyze. The farms have all been scored. As you, you can imagine, you know, a huge range of scores in terms of pollinator points. And the farmers, you know, have been paid for delivering biodiversity and ecosystem services. Just I hope Andrew doesn't mind, but Andrew's one of the tillage farmers in the project and he, he provided this quote to us, you know, which I think, you know, was, was really positive. He's saying, you know, that he's able to look at all the pieces that are assembled to create the habitat and it highlights his own strengths and weaknesses and then engages him in the process so that, that he as a farmer can decide how far he wants to push the environmental and the financial gains. So just to finish, back to the, to the All-Ireland Pollinator Plan, you know, I think we all know that sustaining long-term participation with the plan will be a challenge. You know, of course it will. It's, it's always maybe easier in the first phase and that longer-term participation will be more difficult. And I think, you know, we know that that needs to be built on trust and the experts running it. We know that it needs to be built on acknowledgement of all the efforts. And we know that there have to be clear demonstrations that the action we're taking are actually making a difference. So I always say, you know, lots of small actions taken together really can begin to solve big problems. I want to say thank you to Chagas. There's been so many people in Chagas who've been so supportive of the Pollinator Plan. And again, particularly Catherine Keena. So we're really grateful to that. And, and we hope and we look forward to working with you again for the next phase. So thank you. Thanks, Una.
you covered a lot there. <laughs> so um, we've a lot of questions coming through here. You've obviously sparked a lot of interest and they, they, as I said at, at, the, at the outset, I think there's very few people that aren't aware of the pollinator plan in Ireland. Uh, you've really success managed to, to, to connect with, with audiences in all different parts of, of the community. Uh, so questions coming through there around the any indications of success of the plan uh, in terms of impact, not just in terms of actions, but actual uh, populations of, of uh, insects in the country. Yeah, it's a good question. And, you know, I, I talked a wee bit about it there that we measure in the success in various ways. You know, one way is that you can measure the food and shelter going back into the landscape. And that is definitely happening, you know, because we can see that engagement with across different sectors. But, you know, Catherine is right that the crux of that is there has to be the plans only going to be a success if there's, you know, more pollinators in the landscape. Um, that's not something that you would expect to see, you know, after the first five year phase. So you would have to, you know, put the food and shelter back in and then give the insects themselves time to respond. So, you know, we're set up to, to track that and we will track that, but you wouldn't expect to see those changes just yet. So I hope, you know, within, you know, towards the end of the second phase and into the third phase, and yes, that we will start to see improvements in the pollinators themselves, which is what this is all about. Good. Um, the figure of 10% has been mentioned in a number of, of strategies and reports from EU to national level to, to achieve a 10% uh, of biodiversity at a farm level or our land allocated to, to biodiversity. What's, what's your view on that? that yeah, I think that's, yeah it's, it's so positive to see that, you know, being, being stated. And the, if all farms, you know, 10% were, were biodiversity friendly, that the collective impact that would be huge. So, you know, it's, it's really positive that that's something that we will aim towards, hopefully. And yeah, it's like it's fantastic. There's, there's um, many farmers across the country that would have those uh, species rich uh, grasslands that you showed in your, your, your photographs there. What would be your advice to, to those farmers, you know, who, who want to maybe cut a crop of hay from them, uh, is there a, a good time of the year to, to, to cut that crop? I suppose, you know, the farmers themselves will know how to manage hay now is better than I will. And, you know, what's been done traditionally is great. But well, from, you know, a, from, a, from a, a pollinator's perspective. perspective. Yeah, from a pollinator's perspective, um, cutting in, in early September, you know, leaving it until September is best, you know, gives all the flowers a chance to grow and set seed for again for the next year. So it provides the pollinators with food source right throughout their season. And then, as I say, that's a seed set for, for the following year. So, yeah, from September is, is the best a, time for pollinators. From an agricultural perspective, probably isn't compatible with... Uh, exactly, you know, exactly. Um, yeah, but you know... Maximising the, 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 the dry matter potential of the crop. And, uh, yeah, the, ex exactly. So it's a balance, isn't it? And, you know, it would be managed in the way the traditional hay meadow might have been. So you're cutting, you know, earlier in July or whenever that happens to be. And that's, you know, having that there and doing that is still really... Obviously, it's incredibly positive to have those habitats. Can't stress how important they are for biodiversity. We better get uh, to our audience questions because I'm conscious time is, is ticking by. Pat, some interesting questions coming through there. Yeah, uh, just the, 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 the first one here is, um, do you have any advice on how to shift people's perspective away from the tidy mentality towards the appreciation of a more natural uh, look around the landscape and around their farm? Yeah, I guess that, that's a huge challenge and this is what we've tried to do within the plan is just to really positively promote where that is happening. I think it's a journey that everyone has to go on and, you know, it, it's really just, you know, going on that journey and bringing people along and some people, you know, are more more willing to come on it than others. But certainly, you know, we've had, I'm always, for go back to Tidy Times and, you know, so many Tidy Times groups have really embraced this, you know, which Tidy Times has changed so much, you know, over the last, you know, decades. And I mean, they they have made amazing progress, you know, in just normalizing ways of managing the landscape, which is a bit different to what we used to, and allowing nature back into our lives again. So it's not about letting things go wild, but it's about letting nature back in. And yeah, I think it's about it's about promoting how positive that is and, and getting people to see that as you know, something that, that, that is really good for biodiversity, good for humans. There's a question there in relation to complementarity between the pollinator plan and the uh, objectives in relation to, to bird populations. Uh, have you any comment in relation to it? 
Yeah, and what we try to do is make sure that there is complementarity with, you know, all the other biodiversity schemes out there. So we do work closely with with Birdwatch Ireland. Um, so I think, you know, generally the actions that you're taking for pollinators are also going to benefit biodiversity generally, and particularly birds. So, you know, if we're saying, well, you know, let hedgerows flower in spring, obviously then they're going to fruit in the autumn and provide, you know, food for birds as well as areas for nesting. So I think, you know, I hope that there is complementarity between across the biodiversity initiatives in Ireland. Uh, there's a, a question there in relation to the uh, multi-species wards as opposed to species rich wards where you have your, your uh, um, clovers, uh, grasses and, and uh, uh, herb species. Do they have any benefit uh, for uh, pollinators? The main benefit is seen as, as uh, reducing nitrogen and, 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 and uh, I suppose preventing pollution. But yeah, and there's also a huge benefit for pollinators. So the multi-species wards are fantastic, you know, so where it can move away from just dry grass into multi-species wards is incredibly, you know, valuable for pollinators and for wider biodiversity. So yeah, absolutely. The more flowers that, that you can have, you know, whatever way that that's being done, the, the better. So definitely, you know, multi-species wards and farms is hugely positive. Questionnaire in relation to gardens, is it better to do low level cutting rather than uh, allowing it to go completely wired or maybe just cutting once a year? Yeah, in, in your garden, it's up, it's up to you. And we always say there's three types of cutting you can do. You can have areas where you just cut once a year and, and maybe in a garden you want to restrict that to a small area because obviously you're going to have to deal with the cuttings you know, when it comes to September. And then what you might want to do in your garden is just do a reduced level cutting. So you have got these short foreign meadows. Maybe you're not cutting every week or every fortnight, but instead cutting maybe every six weeks. And that'll let dandelions flower in spring. And then, you know, you need another six week cut and let clovers flower. So, yeah. Just reducing your morning gardens is, is really positive. Uh, question here, is there a plan to have a, I've pledged my farm to, to pollinators? Liz Gabbett, thank you for that question. Um, yes, Liz, but I don't know. Yeah, we're, we're considering all the positive and negatives of that at the minute. I, I can see how, you know, it, it, it might be positive because we do have this Pledge Your Garden initiative, which has, has worked really well. So yeah, we, we do have lots of plans around farmland and that, that's one thing that is being considered, but we'll have to wait and see what we decide. So now we're, we're, we're getting a lot of huge positive remarks, as you can see there, about your presentation and uh, well, well done on, on, on uh, capturing people's attention so much on a Friday morning. Uh, the question here about what advice you would have for field margins where realistically the seed bank is devoid of wildflowers and it will take decades to reduce the nutrient content in the soil. Is there any, uh, any offer, advice you'd offer there? Yeah, so that's a really good question. And, and the, the person is dead right that it does take an awful long time to bring that back because of the level of um, nutrients. Um, I think, and that's what we try to do within the EIP is to have this range of different options. So, you know, if on your farm that you can choose things are gonna work better for you. So, you know, it, maybe it's a case that, that field margins aren't going to be an option. Um, the other thing is, you know, in those field margins, perhaps, you know, there's there's a place for having some sort of clover mix going in rather than, you know, trying to, to reinstate. Uh, so to allow, I always say just try natural regeneration and be patient with it. You know, and maybe there's other areas of the farm, whether it's along lanes or field corners where you can do that and it will work. Um, I guess, you know, if they are determined to do something on a field margin, I would say consider some sort of agricultural clover mix rather than, than a wildflower mix, personally. And to avoid fertilisation, yeah. obviously, as well. Question there in relation to the spike in your graph uh, in 2018. Uh, have you any explanation for it? It was the graph in terms of the numbers of pollinators. I'm um, not sure which graph that showed, maybe it was a, the one. An early graph showed an, an increase. Oh, that was from the bumblebee monitoring scheme. And I think 2018, we had really lovely weather, you might remember. Yeah. <laughs> so it was a really nice, yeah, and also that's it. And I think it just shows you the importance of the long-term nature of those schemes, because of course you get fluctuations around weather. So we need to have long-term data to be able to take that impact out of the actual long-term changes. Was it an actual impact or more people were getting out to have a look at them? I mean, that as well. Yeah, yeah, okay. yeah. It's a lot to tease out in those kind of data sets, yeah. Um, yeah, I suppose the, the Mark mentioned the, the thing about the uh, 10%, but the balance of the 10%, if I've taken a, a dairy farm 
how would I best provide uh, or use that 10% uh, uh, in terms of different types of, of habitats to provide a consistency of food and shelter for, for pollinators? It's a really good question. I think it comes back to that combination of the two key actions that I talked about. So it's about hedgerows, you know, as much foreign native hedgerow as you can to provide food source in spring, as well as, you know, nesting sites at the base. And then it's moving into some sort of meadow flowers within meadows, whether that is, you know, clover, species rich swords, or areas of, of, you know, unmanaged areas around the farm where you let wildflowers naturally grow. So I think it's a combination of those two things that you're Initially, you've got hedgerows, and then that's coming into the, the, the meadow wildflowers that can naturally grow around the farm. Uh, a question there: uh, Can I ask if any research has been conducted on, on biodiversity on farms with traditional uh, stone walls as field dividers, as opposed to your hedgerows? Um, not that I'm aware of. The traditional stone walls are really important for nesting habitat, particularly for the cavity nests and solitary bees. But of course, you know, then they're not providing the forage source that the hedgerow would. So yeah, I'm I'm not aware of of, of research that, that would allow you to directly compare those two. And a question there in relation to the relationship between commercial forestry, and I suppose you can divide that into two types: a, a conifer type or a, or a more diverse type, uh, and uh, pollinators. Yeah, um, and it's funny, you know, the, the grassland habitats, because they're, they're so far rich, tend to be, you know, of most importance to pollinators, but forestry does does support pollinators, particularly around, you know, edges and, um, and that. Obviously, not, um, native um, forestry is much better for biodiversity, you know, than the conifer plantations. And as I say, we do have plans to produce a, a guideline document, you know, for how to make forestry more pollinator friendly, as we've done for all the other sectors. So that is on the cards. Um, it is, you know, challenging, but certainly forestry can be pollinator friendly, and particularly for for things like hoverflies, you know, if if not so much for bees. There's a question there as to the, I suppose, the exact nature of the decline of the the, the uh, solitary bees. Is it more about the food source? Is it more about nesting sites? What is that critical factor in your opinion, or is it just a combination of everything? It's a combination, but I mean, I think that it's the lack of food that is the key driver. Um, solitary bees, you know, their nest sites are always transitory. They're they, because they nest in bare soil. You know, they move around the landscape as that becomes available. Um, certainly, it's probably a limiting factor. But I think that the greater limiting factor is the lack of food. And really importantly, with solitary bees, they're, they're, they don't fly far from their nest to feed. You know, so their nest sites have to be really close to food sources. But I think if we could get more food sources back into landscape, that would go a long way to, to address the issues that they're facing. And if you were to, to I suppose, give, I suppose we're, we're, we're at the point of finishing up, last couple of uh, uh, take-home messages to uh, to farmers in terms of trying to to improve their situation on their farm, what would they be? So we'd firstly just ask our farmers to have a look at the website pollinators.ie and then you can see on the farmland section you know the kind of things that we're recommending but if I had only one thing I would say hedgerows you know the more hedgerows that we could have on farms the better you know they're so important as food sources as corridors as nest sites so you know if we had more farm more more hedgerows on farmlands you know we'd, we'd all be better off. Thank you so much. Uh, I can see one word coming through all of our comments and questions this morning is inspiring. So uh, thank you for that. And uh, like uh, you said there, I encourage everybody to, to take a look at the, the pollinator, pollinators.ie uh, website, uh, where it really is uh, you know, it's so rich resource, such a rich resource uh, for, for anybody who's considering um, pollinators. There was one question there about signage for uh, pollinators uh, or pollinator friendly areas it, can, are they accessed through the councils is it or where, where? Oh, so again pollinators.ie and if pollinators. you go to the resource <laughs> section you'll find the signage templates and you can um, you can get the templates there and, and have signs made up if, if you want it's a printed local here something like that great yeah. well Luna thank you so much again and um, we maybe hope to get you back again and uh, see how the, the this latest plan is is developing so uh, with that, we'd want to thank you again for, for tuning in. Huge numbers of people joining us again. So uh, we're delighted to see that continued interest. I want to thank Yvonne Maher and Andy Boland for uh, their work on the production side of the series. 
and uh, we look forward to seeing you next week. You've been listening to the podcast version of the Chagisk Signpost series, the weekly webinar that promotes and examines sustainability in Irish farming. Don't forget to join us live every Friday morning for our latest webinar. For more, visit chagisk.ie. And you can also rate, review and subscribe to the Signpost series on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts from. I'm Mark Gibson and thanks for listening.